0: So Indian property rights, is that governed by American law? Is it governed by tribal law or a mix?
1: It depends. Uh, Um.
0: you, You know, you really are a lawyer at heart. You really are. Congratulations.
1: Indian property rights can be subject to tribal law. They can be subject to state law. They can be subject to federal law. And sometimes they be subject to all three. Probably they could be subject to both tribal and federal or federal and state. Probably they could not be subject to all three at the same time.
2: Wow, this is a lot more complicated than I
0: thought. This is really complicated. <laughs>
2: this is Infrastructure Junkies.
0: Welcome, Infrastructure Junkies, to your show. This is a podcast created by right of way professionals for right of way professionals. The Infrastructure Junkies podcast is the voice of the right of way industry, exploring imminent domain, right of way acquisition, and infrastructure development. Today, infrastructure junkies, Indian property rights, and right-of-way projects.
2: Ooh, this is going to be fascinating.
0: This is going to be fascinating. It's a fascinating subject that affects right-of-way agents and projects all across the country. And today, we have with us the nation's leading expert on the subject.
2: Yeah, and that's a good thing, because although you may not come across this very often, when you need to know this stuff, you need to know this stuff.
0: And you'll be able to get it here. But first. A shout-out and a big thank you to Blackbird Right-of-Way, the full-service, DBE-certified Right-of-Way company that made this episode possible. Thank you very much, Blackbird Right-of-Way.
2: All right, IJs, today we have with us Bethany Berger. Professor Bethany Berger is a widely read scholar of property law and legal history and one of the leading federal Indian law scholars in the country. She is a co-author and member of the editorial board of Felix S. Cohen's Handbook of Federal Indian Law, the foundational treatise in the field, and co-author of leading case books in both property law and American Indian law. Her articles have appeared in the Michigan Law Review, California Law Review, UCLA Law Review, and the Duke Law Journal, among other publications, and have been excerpted and discussed in many casebooks and edited collections, as well as in briefs to the Supreme Court and testimony before Congress. Professor Berger graduated with honors from Wesleyan University, where she was elected to Phi Beta Kappa, and from Yale Law School. You heard of it?
0: Yeah, I have heard of it. With Princeton and Harvard, that's one of the big three. It's a kind of big deal. It's a very big deal.
2: Yeah. So at the University of Connecticut School of Law, Professor Berger teaches American Indian law, property, tribal law, and conflict of laws. Bethany, thanks for coming.
0: Good afternoon, Professor Bethany Berger. I understand that you just donated blood right before you came on.
1: I did. just finished just 20 minutes ago.
0: Well, Are you okay to answer some really tough questions?
1: We'll see. Did you get a cookie and some orange juice? I brought an apple with me. I, got, I picked up some juice. I didn't have time to drink it. Well,
2: good for you. Thank you for doing your, that, that lovely.
0: <laughs> law professors duty. are human too. I never knew that when I was in law school, but they are humans as well.
2: Well, Bethany, we're so excited to have you on to talk about Indian property rights and reservations. And I'll tell you. For our listeners, you may remember last year, we had an episode, Infrastructure Junkies Roundtable Part 2 mm-hmm. and one of my topics was exactly this, and I had so many questions. I had recently visited an Apache reservation in New Mexico with my family, and we went to this... Beautiful church, and we're looking around, and I I just started thinking I don't know anything about this. Who lives here? How do they come to live there? Uh, what happens if a road needs to go through a reservation? Can they do that? Can we condemn it? What, what happens? And I had all of these questions on our infrastructure junkies roundtable, hoping that someone could answer them. And we all just kind of scratched our heads and went, "Well, guess we'll never know the answer to that." And Google was not all that helpful. So when we heard about you, I thought this this is the one. Yeah. She can answer the questions <laughs> no one can answer.
0: So let's first answer the most important question, which is, it seems like standards are constantly changing in our society. What is the preferred way to address people who were here before the English colonists got here?
1: So I think Indian, American Indian, and Native American are all equally good. None of them is actually offensive. In fact, well, so Indian is the most common term when you go to reservations, generally, and it's also the most common term in law. So all these statutes still talk about Indians. American Indian and Alaska Native is generally the term that's used in modern statutes. Native American is a term that only came up in the 1970s, I think. And when I was doing historical research looking for Native Americans back in the 1820s, the only place I found it was referring to uh, kind of an anti-immigrant group. Mm. So that's a kind of weird historical thing. I think the trend is to start saying Native or Indigenous because... Both American Indian and Native American are not terms accepted by Alaska Native people or by Native Hawaiian people. So if you're talking about an individual, best to talk about their particular tribal connection. So rather than saying somebody's an Indian, say someone is Navajo.
0: Interesting. Great. Yeah. Oh, that, yeah. We just yeah. got
1: I mean we got our money's worth right there. Right,
0: right. Well, great. that's the end of this episode. You have got your money's worth. Okay. So, but here's what's fascinating to me and we had another law professor on last season, Tanya Marsh at Wake Forest, and she she specializes in cemetery law and human remains. Very very arcane for most people. And I think she teaches the only cemetery law course in an American law school. That's right. And so then we found you and I'm like, this is great because each of you has this specialized knowledge, which isn't very common and is very useful to our industry. But here's the question. And how did you, if you look at your CV, if you look at your list of published articles, this isn't just something that you have a hobby in. This is something you've studied deeply and and been published on in many great journals. How did you get into this? Do you have Native American uh, ancestors? Is it just something that came naturally of interest to you? How'd you get into this?
1: Right. So I don't have any Native heritage. I'm from New York City, so didn't grow up anywhere near Indian country. It's kind of one of those happy accidents that happens in law school. I started law school interested in international law and particularly international human rights law and i did some of that and i was frustrated for the lack of being able to use precedent in the same way and also because of the the cultural differences sometimes made me feel like i wasn't great at addressing those issues But so I went to a summer job fair, and the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe, which is in South Dakota, was looking for people to come work in their tribal attorney general's office. And I went there my second summer and fell in love with it. Just the overlapping sovereignties, the questions of different cultures, and also the huge importance that a lawyer can have doing federal Indian law. So one of the cases I worked on was South Dakota was imposing a tax on Lakota people on the reservation that three Supreme Court cases involving Oklahoma had said was illegal. And they would have kept on imposing that tax had it not been for a couple of tribal members that went to law school, came back and said, this looks wrong. And so there we went and challenged it. So you can have this amazing impact. Yeah. Uh, plus, doing
0: I'll tell you, I don't even think this subject was sufficiently taught in elementary school, high school, had no exposure to the topic as an undergrad. And, And Bethany, I didn't cover it in law school, not even in my property class. So this is great. This is great. All right. I do remember... Like back in third grade, this concept that this concept of Indian property rights, as they understood it, pre-colonization was very different in some tribes from what we understand them to be. And that can be both personal property and real property. Would you agree with that statement?
1: No, I would tend to push back on that a little bit. I think that has been the kind of common story that... Indians had no concept of property and that's why the treaties went so wrong. I think if you look at the concepts, there's a lot more, there's a lot of similarities. There's definitely ideas of individual property, there were distinct ideas of territory, of agreements regarding property. Uh, A difference though is that there was more emphasis on commonly owned land. So, A lot of land people had common rights to unless they were interfering with the rights of the individuals that had primary rights. So that's a bit of a difference, certainly, than the property law we have today. It's not actually so different than the law in Old England, when, as you know, there were all these customary rights to cross over land and graze on land and stuff like that. So, it's more of a difference of degree than totally kind.
0: Okay. All right. Now, what's the current derivation of property rights among Native Americans, like now as it exists today?
1: Yeah. (laughs) So, (laughs) it's complicated. Yeah. So, reservations. There are at least four different kinds of property tribal trust property, individual trust property, Indian fee land, and non-Indian fee land. So, trust property is property that's held by the United States, but it's in trust for either the tribe or the individual. And that comes from both the kind of historic status of reservations since the founding of the United States, but also laws that were put in place to prevent states and non-Indians from unfairly taking tribal Indian land, and then there's a lot of Indian fee land, which is land owned by Indian people on the reservation, but otherwise it's subject to sale and so on, just like other land. And then there's non-Indian fee land on the reservation, which is land owned by non-Indians on reservation, which is basically the same except for some jurisdictional things with any land off reservation. And all this comes out of a history that's about 200 years old. So so all of like a, a
2: reservation has a little bit of all of that on it? Okay. Yeah. this is I just assumed there was like, this is a reservation. Here's the boundary of it. And it's all... Owned by the trust people. Uh, th- th- that's fascinating to me. So, one reservation can have tribal trust, individual trust, Indian fee land, and non Indian fee land.
1: Yeah. Wow. So, it creates a lot of issues. We I would call think it, so. you know, it's called the checkerboard because that's what it looks like. And for jurisdictional purposes, you might have to figure out where you are in the checkerboard to figure out federal, state, tribal jurisdiction. Yeah. And so, a lot of this came from a at the end of the 19th century when the federal government said, okay, what tribes need is for us to divide up their land, sell most of it to non-Indians, and the rest would be owned by individual Indians because that's going to teach them how to be not Indian. Oh, and wow. so they chunked up all the land. And so some non-Indians got directly. Other land after a certain period of time lost its trust data so it could be sold. And a lot of that land, like the majority of land was quickly lost to tax sales or to debt or things like that. And then by 1934, Congress said, this is horrible. The Indians that are subject to this are all landless. They're farming act which was kind of the goal of this actually went down under the program and so they said any remaining land that's not in fee yet is going to stay in trust so it kind of froze in the place that it was in 1934 after this allotment program. and it's has it stayed like that pretty much the federal government can with if a tribe asks it to take new land into trust it can take there's the statute says it can take new land into trust but there's a big political process for that
2: this is blowing my mind so me a non-indian like could i go buy some land on a indian reservation then
1: yeah wow not true you could go buy land on a reservation
0: so again before we got started i told you i know really nothing about this and i certainly don't know enough about it Essentially, every Indian reservation as they exist today were created by the American government, right? Yeah. That begs the question then who, what, when, where, why, how? <laughs> Did every tribe get a reservation? And who determined where the reservations were located? Who determined the size of the reservations? Who determined who had to, did they have to live on the reservation or could they assimilate into regular society? Like how did, how did all that work? Could an Indian own land in the 1800s outside of a reservation?
1: That was a bunch of questions. I know.
0: Well, she's a smart professor. That's
1: true. So the, the general answer is it's going to be different for all tribes. Definitely not all tribes got reservations. You got a reservation if the federal government decided you were enough of a pain to deal with, that they wanted to limit your land by law. So for example, where I used to work on Navajo reservations, the Navajos got a reservation in 1868, because they were a big tribe that was in war with the United States and the United States says, okay, let's limit this, let's confine you on this piece of land. The Hopi tribe, who were kind of always known as the peaceful people, they didn't get a reservation, even though their land was right in the center of the Navajo land. So they didn't get a reservation for decades until the federal government was like, okay, what do we do with these Hopis? On the East Coast, because all of the initial relationships were with colonies rather than the federal government, for a lot of tribes, by the time there was a federal government, there was, the tribes had, enough people had died, enough land had been taken, that the federal government didn't enter into agreements making reservations for them. Wow. And a lot of the reservations that we have now, some limited numbers are where the tribe's original land was. So like Navajo and Hopi, they're where their land was.
2: This is just really fascinating to me too because I feel like I've been sold a bill of goods my whole life. Like, oh, Indian reservations, that's about like preserving their land and protecting them. But it's really about containing and limiting them,
1: right, originally? It's both. So I was originally saying, okay, this little bit of land that was your larger historic territory, you get to keep this bit. But then the federal government, like for the Cherokee and Choctaw and Chickasaw, all those... Five tribes in the Southeast said, We don't want you here anymore. We're going to give you land in what's now Oklahoma. And so you got to move off the land that you're on. So, yeah. Wow. Well,
0: y- you made a comment to the effect of the, a lot of the reservations are kind of located where the Indian tribe existed historically. But I guess there's a limitation to that. It's unless the European colonists wanted that property or needed the property or it was economically beneficial. Is that a fair qualification?
1: Totally. And for basically all the tribes east of the Mississippi River, except for some in New York, some in Michigan, they were all moved west. Since then, in the 20th century, some Tribes have gotten new reservations recognized in what used to be their land, but particularly east of the Mississippi, we got a lot of moving around.
2: Well, let's dive in a little bit on on who what's happening on the reservations. And what one of the questions I had last year was, who lives on a reservation? How do they come to live there? And so I did some Googling. Probably about the equivalent of going to WebMD when your nose itches or something. But I went on Google and I I read a lot of articles about how it, it's really difficult to to get a spot to live on the reservation. Or there's it's a, you there was there's a tremendous overcrowding because there's not enough room or people have to wait, and then lots of articles about just completely substandard living uh, conditions. And so my question is who, I've got a couple, just like Dave, we're going to ask you multiple questions at a time. Who lives on the reservation? How do they come to live there? And is that desirable? Do they want to live on the reservation? Is that like, oh, I can't, I've got to get there. Or are they trying to get out? And I know that's a blanket statement that won't hold true for everyone, but who's living on the reservations?
1: It depends. So we just talked about checkerboarding and allotment. Mm-hmm. Because of that, on a lot of reservations, most of the people that live there are non indian what um, or at least
0: a lot, yes.
2: Oh, what are you serious? Uh-huh.
0: Oh, my goodness, I had no idea. I didn't know you were allowed to live I on it either. if you weren't an Indian,
1: yeah, yeah. And that fee land anybody can buy and sell it. They're the trust land, so and, and in terms of Indian people, native people on the land, I think. There are mixed um, desires. I think a lot of people that start on reservations would like to stay on reservations if economics and everything would allow them to, but most of the jobs, all the higher education, well most of the higher education is off reservation, so lots and lots of Native people have to leave reservations. There was also a whole thing in the 1950s encouraging Native people leave reservations and go to cities. So a lot of Native people left reservations then, and so interestingly, now that there are more jobs and economic development happening in reservations, Native people are moving back. So I remember some of the census, you know, in a lot of rural areas in general, people are leaving. Some of the trends are that native people are moving back to rural areas, even as more non-native rural people are leaving, but
0: yeah, it's a mix. You mentioned economic development, and as we all know, economic development is often tied very closely to infrastructure development, right? And so who's responsible for infrastructure development on an Indian reservation? And that can span anything from roads to sewer, to schools, to cell towers, whatever. Who's responsible for that development?
1: Uh, It depends. So the tribe has a role. The federal government has a role. The state and local governments have a role. And on trust land, you need federal and tribal consent to do rights of way and so on. And there's a particular set of rights of way regulations about rights of way on that restricted trust land. But fee land, the state could also say, this is, we're going to have a hand in this.
0: And so you've drawn a distinction between trust land and fee land. Both exist within a reservation, right? Right. So is there some sort of master map which designates trust land from fee land?
1: There are maps. The Bureau of Indian Affairs has maps. They're, they're not super easy to access. I've tried just Googling them. I love starting with Google. Um, right. And
0: you know, not super easy. Okay. Well, let's take a simple infrastructure project like a road or a highway or an interstate or something like that. Whoever is going to build that road and frequently it is the state, right? Can they build one through an Indian reservation? And then if so, do they take into consideration typically whether it's going to be trust land or fee land, which is impacted? Yeah. So they
1: can, but they generally need consent from the Secretary of the Interior and consent from the tribe if it's going to go over trust land.
0: And does eminent domain exist on an Indian reservation? Or is it purely, yes. do, do, do they have to get consent?
2: So can Indian reservation land be condemned?
0: Yeah, can it be condemned? And I'm wondering where this, where consent plays a role. For instance, even on a city project or a state highway project, on some level, you have to get consent. Like the city council has to pass a resolution authorizing eminent domain to build a road, at least in Virginia. So is is that what we're talking about with consent, or do the people in, whose property rights are impacted have to consent to the wow. acquisition of their property?
1: Yeah, for trust land, it generally is either... The tribe, well, so the tribe would have to consent for trust land. I believe that the, for individually owned trust land, that the individual would have to consent as well.
0: And then could it be condemned if they don't? If I don't consent to giving up my property, they'll just condemn it by eminent domain.
1: They could. The state probably couldn't. It would have to be federal law because it's the federal law that says, you need this consent, so the federal government can always come in and say, "Yeah, we're taking it anyway." But they'd have to do it kind of specifically to overrule the existing statutes regulations. So
0: not quite like how it would work for you or me. No, and I would figure if we're gonna if we're gonna do some work that's gonna impact an Indian reservation, we better call Bethany on the front end. That's right. <laughs> or <laughs> not, not a, get into maybe it. Just first.
2: reroute the project, huh?
0: Reroute. Reroute. <laughs> Thank you to Blackbird Right-of-Way, a full-service, DBE-certified Right-of-Way company owned and managed by my good friend, Kristen Bennett. Now, Kristen is deep into her third season as my co-host of the Infrastructure Junkies podcast. Now, that is a very valuable asset to Blackbird's clients. Why, you ask? Just think of all the subject matter experts from both very basic as well as arcane topics we've discussed in the field of -of Right-of-Way that Kristen has befriended. These contacts are very valuable to Blackbird Right of Way and very useful to Blackbird's clients. So, thank you again, Blackbird Right of Way, and back to the show. So, Indian property rights, is that governed by American law? Is it governed by tribal law or a mix?
1: <laughs> it depends. Oh. Um. <laughs>
0: You, you know, you really are a lawyer at heart. You really are. Congratulations.
1: <laughs> it, it's just that these Indian property rights can be subject to tribal law. They can be subject to state law. They can be subject to federal law. And sometimes maybe subject to all three. Probably they could be subject to both tribal and federal or federal and state. Probably they could not be subject to all three at the same time. Wow, this is a lot more complicated than I thought.
0: This is really complicated. (laughs) I thought there were going to be a lot of clear-cut answers.
2: Like, here's the rules, and here's the reservation, and that's that. Right, and And this is the the way we do it. And now we know.
0: Yeah, right, right. So (laughs) you did a paper on jurisdiction over non-members in tribal legal systems. Is that right? Yes. And what was the thesis of that, or what was the basis of that? And and we need the TikTok version here, right?
1: Yeah, no, I'm trying to think of how to say it quickly, how to say it like mm-hmm. kind of simply. That tribes should have jurisdiction over non-members on their reservations. So I looked at the, the case law and said the case law wasn't actually based in what case law should be based in. And then I looked at how tribal jurisdiction works and talked about how important it was for tribe have jurisdiction and also that the whose all of whose cases involving non-Indians and non-members I looked at, how they were really fair when it came to deciding those cases.
0: So does a tribe have jurisdiction over me as long as I am somewhere on its reservation? No. Oh, then how do they, do I have to be at a certain place or Do I have to consent?
1: So for criminal jurisdiction, they have no jurisdiction over you at all wherever on the reservation you are outside these very limited things. Wow.
0: Okay. It wasn't until
1: 2013 that Congress said, if you are married to an Indian woman and you beat her, then under some special circumstances, the tribe might have jurisdiction over you.
0: Wow. that was it? Just if you beat your wife?
1: Pretty much, just if you beat your wife, just or your intimate partner. And then just, this is an exciting thing. Just last month, Congress signed into law, something saying, okay, if you do any sexual violence against an Indian, Person on reservations or against an Indian child or against a tribal law enforcement officer, you could be subject to special tribal jurisdiction. Oh, wow. That's big news. Yeah. It is big news, but still, it's like, okay, you don't have to be married to her. And right. so, and, <laughs> <you know. laughs> step yeah. in the right direction, but
2: maybe not enough.
0: And so how about civil jurisdiction? If I'm driving through a reservation, I rear end an Indian, I guess, I guess be state jurisdiction for a a personal injury suit.
1: So this is where it gets a little complicated. Oh, boy. It depends. (laughs) So it depends whose land you're on. So if it is, if it's a state highway through reservation, probably the tribe has no jurisdiction civil jurisdiction. If it's a tribal highway through the reservation, so not a state right away, the tribe might have jurisdiction over that tort suit, but it's kind of a complicated test.
0: Okay, and then you know where I'm going, what about acquisition of this property? Is that state jurisdiction? I know you said the tribe has to consent, but where do the laws derive for acquisition? of real property for a right-of-way project in an Indian reservation?
1: Well, it's federal law. Federal law says whether you need federal and tribal consent or not, there are, even on reservations on non-trust land, the federal government can have a role. Federal law says it. And this ties into that jurisdiction piece. Because the Supreme Court said, even on trust land, if a tribe gives a right of way and doesn't in that right of way agreement, preserve jurisdiction, then it loses all jurisdiction. So somebody negotiating right away on tribal land might have the tribe say, we need something in this agreement that says we still have jurisdiction, even though we're giving you this right of way."
2: Okay. You've blown my mind a few times today already. We're going to blow yours now.
0: All right. <laughs> okay. I, I seriously doubt that. Come Probably
2: not. All right. So we have a little bit that we do on the show called Riddle Me This, where we're going to ask you a question, and then we just kind of want to talk about it for a minute.
0: Then we Here. tell you whether you're right or wrong.
2: What do you think?
1: Okay. Are
0: you All game? Right. Sure.
2: Okay. So here's okay. your Riddle Me This Question. Now we we asked you a couple of questions before um, we got started on this show. And you told us that you like Lizzo. And I do too. I listened to Lizzo this morning. And so then we started talking about hip hop. Dave and I can talk for hours about nothing, but we talked about hip-hop a little bit. And we here's our question for you. Okay, hip-hop. Do you have to have talent to be a hip-hop star or do you just need a great producer?
1: Because My brother-in-law, as I told you, does hip-hop music. I'm going to say you need to have talent.
2: Fair enough. Do do you think the producer helps?
1: Oh, yeah. Totally. I agree. I I think, yeah. Well, here's a question. Hip-hop's a a, uh, collaborative process often. It sure
2: is. But here's another question about hip-hop. This is kind of Riddle Me This part be so, w- <laughs> we were also talking about like there is definitely like an age where there's a generational gap or something. Like, my parents are not fans, they're older, they're you know, late 60s, early 70s. They there's no hip hop that they like, like, they didn't like Lauren Hill, they don't like rap, they don't like it, the greats, they don't, they just don't get it, they don't appreciate it. And so, I think then there you get to people my age, and even if it's somebody that loves like outlaw country, they still love. Dre and Snoop and uh, Lauren Hill. I mean, I feel like there's just kind of an, inna- an innate appreciation of hip hop for people my age and certainly younger. Like, where's the cutoff? Like, when do people go, okay, I like hip hop? Is it boomers? Gen X? Like, when did we start kind of all
1: liking hip hop? Uh, yes. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. What do you think? I
0: think-, I, I think it's generational. And I think that take it back a generation when rock and roll was breaking, right? And all the parents were like, that's stupid. It's the devil's music. music. Yeah, (laughs) it's no good. Um, It doesn't take any talent. And now we know that rock and roll took incredible talent. I mean, is anybody going to say Jimmy Page has no talent? Like, is there anybody on earth? You don't have to like him. Are you going to say he's not talented? And so I think that's what you saw with rap. Remember Rapper's Delight? You don't remember this, but Bethany might. Rapper's Delight came out in like 1979. It was the first big rap song. And it was like, oh, these guys are... I don't think it took any talent to do that, but that's kind of a funny story. And then Run DMC came out with "Raising Hell in 86, and a bunch of college kids, including me, wore that thing out. And my parents are still like, that's that's not any good music. No, that was that was actually pretty good music. So I think that's part of the evolution is every new genre of music, somebody starts out by saying that's no good. Yeah, you might be onto something. But the riddle here's the riddle me this, Bethany. And since you have relatives in the hip hop world, the big criticism we've heard for years and years is they don't really write their own music. They just use they sample. They use other people's music. Do they ever really write their own music? And is a beat writing your own music? Is a sample creating your own music?
1: Interesting. Well, since the things I write are all based on something somebody else already wrote. In other words, cases. Yeah. That's what a sample is, I would think. So picking the right thing Ooh. is pretty pretty significant. But and I know in my family, the musicians, they write all their own music. So so I don't think it's
0: Yeah, yeah and I will say I, I'm much more familiar with Gangsta Grass than Kristen is. I downloaded some of their music when I was watching the show Justified when it was still playing. And of course, that was the theme. Gangsta Grass had the theme song to justify it. And I loved it. And I actually paid for the download. It was back in the day when you had to pay for it. And I've downloaded some of their other music. And clearly, clearly, that is really original. They somehow have hip hop lyrics with hip hop themes and a fiddle and a banjo, right? That's unique. Yeah. And that is, they write their own music.
2: Yeah. And for our listeners, Gangsta Grass, you have a connection to Gangsta
1: Grass, correct? Yes my my brother-in-law is one of the founding people of Gangsta Grass.
0: Wow. And what does he, he, he still play with them?
1: No, he's he's yeah, right at the center. He's, is he a, wrench? Is uh, he vocals or does he play an instrument or what is it? What does he do? All of that, and he does producing. So he's he's a writer, a singer, a player. Yeah. No, he makes our family seem much cooler than otherwise. (laughs) Oh, for (laughs) sure. That's like,
2: y'all are way cool, for
0: sure. Gangsta Grass is coming to Charlottesville, Virginia later this month at the Ting Theater. We should go. We should go. That'd be pretty cool.
1: So Yeah, so it's it's bluegrass and hip-hop mixed together, and it sounds amazing. And actually, just kind of on the... Indian law theme, listen to their cover. They don't do that many covers, but listen to their cover of this land is your land, which is really interesting and moving. Oh, we sure will. And just to let
2: you know, you're correct. We agree with you. You got to be talented. But I do think there are hip hop artists who have very little talent and really great producers
0: like Vanilla Ice.
2: Probably, but like Eminem, his last album, there's some songs on there where he's rapping so fast. I don't know how your brain could keep up like your mouth could keep up with your brain. It's like, that's talent on another level. Right. Another instance, when we're talking about sampling stuff, Dave and I were at podcast movement, which is a big conference for podcasters. And we got to go to a show with Questlove. Okay. Oh yeah. Who just won an Oscar by the way, after the slap heard around the world. But so we go and and I'm like, what's Questlove? Is he going to rap? Like, was he playing the drums? Like, what's he going to do? Well, he's DJing and i've never been to a show where somebody's just djing but he's up there with with this all his fancy equipment and would like roll through like these songs that would just roll into the next and roll into the next and then he'd mix them together and do these mashups and it blew my mind. I like that is talent on another level as well. And it was fascinating.
0: It was. And and the cool thing was you knew all the songs. It's not like going to see a band and you know, three other songs and you got to sit through the other 12 that you don't know. Like, you know, every single song and every single song yeah. is really, really exciting. It would go
2: from like queen to Dr. Dre, then to like Missy Elliott and then to like the theme from, bonanza or something. I mean, it was just crazy. It was really good. So I think you have the correct answer today on Riddle Me This, and thank you for playing along.
0: You're a great sport, Bethany. Great sport. Okay.
2: Check out Gangsta Grass, everybody.
0: I would love... You you wrote a paper on this, a, a scholastic article, I should say, about the case of McGirt versus Oklahoma, and that's not the first time I've heard about this case, by the way. And it's been brought up to me in a right away context, and somebody actually asked us to do an entire podcast on that case last year. We just didn't get to it. But since you wrote the scholarly article about it, could you tell us in simplest terms what this case is about?
1: Sure. And before I do that, I want to say two, well, another connection I have to the case that I wrote briefs for the National Congress of American Indians in that case, and the case that came before it, and the Indian country case that came before it. So I'm meshed in McGirt. So it's about whether the reservations in Eastern Oklahoma, that the federal government moved those tribes that I talked about to still exist. So basically, the federal government said to the Cherokee and Creek and Choctaw and Chickasaw and Seminole, you can't be here anymore in Alabama, Georgia, Florida. We're moving you to Indian Territory and we're give you these really strong treaties saying these are your reservations forever. And then later on, the federal government said we don't like that so much. So we're going to divide up all your land. But they never said the reservations didn't exist anymore. But... Oklahoma immediately started acting like the reservations didn't exist anymore, and they acted like that for 100 years. And the case said, that's not how you end a reservation. A state can't do it. Federal government has to do it, has to do it really clearly, and they didn't do that clearly enough here.
0: So it was kind of a takings case, right? The state was taking the Ah. the reservation and they weren't doing it properly?
1: Well, it's a jurisdiction case. Okay. So whether something's a reservation doesn't change who owns the land. The non-Indians owning their land on those reservations still do. It's whether the state has jurisdiction over Indians on those reservations and whether the federal government and tribal governments can have some jurisdiction on those reservations.
0: Okay, and so why is this case important? Clearly, it's important you wrote an entire article about it, and other people said, hey, you got to talk about this case on your podcast. So why is it so important?
1: Because it changes jurisdiction for half of Oklahoma. That's significant.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that really is. That, and to explain how so.
1: So it's mostly in criminal areas. So if an Indian commits a crime on one of those reservations, the state doesn't have jurisdiction over them. Battle government has jurisdiction over them. Tribe has jurisdiction over them. And also, if a non-Indian, and this is, I just The reason I had to delay our talk was that I just finished a brief in the case that's going before the Supreme Court this year. If a non-Indian commits a crime against an Indian on the reservation, the state also doesn't have jurisdiction over them. Federal government does, tribe does in limited circumstances. So that's the biggest change from GERT.
0: Okay. Let's shift the conversation to something else that's important to our industry. All right. And that is Indian burial grounds, sacred grounds, and when they're impacted by an infrastructure project.
1: So there's something called the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act that applies when there are Native American graves or have sacred things or burial remains on federal or tribal lands. So, in those cases, you can't just dig them up. You need to go through NAGPRA, deal with the federal government and the tribes. NAGPRA actually has a smaller scope than people sometimes think. If you go to your backyard and it turns out that there's a... Native American burial ground there, NAGPRA doesn't actually apply. It doesn't apply to regular private land. There are state laws that may apply, but they're kind of inconsistent.
0: So, any, and, and what about if you run into artifacts, whether they're on a reservation right. or not?
1: So, if they fall into that category, museums can't. They, they need to work with tribes about repatriation if they want those artifacts repatriated. But I don't think there's a land use limit if you run into artifacts.
0: Okay. Well, let's be very clear here. So I'm a project manager and we're building a road. And let's say we're building a road not on an Indian reservation. And we say, hey, look over here, Jimmy John running the bulldozer. He found this here arrowhead. Most people find arrowheads and put them in their pocket. But what if Jimmy John finds, I don't know, something more significant than arrowheads, whether it's pottery and we're going through what used to be Cherokee lands or we know that the the Cherokee tribe, the tribe had settled there or their people had settled there. Do you have to do anything special if the artifact has particular significance or should we be calling somebody if we just find an arrowhead? Probably
1: shouldn't call somebody if you just find an arrowhead. If you find... Anything more significant, you definitely should call the tribe. And so this is what you should do. What you're required to do, if it's just private land, state law might require something more of you, but federal law doesn't generally intervene.
0: Okay, well, let's be clear. We, we had the same discussion with another guest about graves and make no mistake. If you're on a project and you encounter a a marked or unmarked grave, if you just keep going, you're probably going to go to jail. (laughs) Okay. So uh, it sounds to me, what you're saying is the ramifications aren't as draconian. If you just plow on through Indian artifacts, if you see them or you, you know, give it to everybody on the project to take something home to their kids.
1: So, I mean, and I know Professor Marsh is a super expert on this. My understanding of the state law was that it varied. Yes, it does.
0: It does.
1: yeah, that for unmarked graves, there wasn't necessarily that much protection. Like some states gave protection, but some states didn't.
0: And, and she was very clear that unmarked graves varied from state to state, but she was also equally as clear is that if you encounter something like that, you stop and pick up the phone and do not proceed one more inch because of the possibility that you might go to jail, and, and
1: oh, okay, yeah, no, so I would totally agree with that. So, what you should do to make sure you don't go to jail is stop and check it out, right? Because the law varies.
0: And how about for Indian artifacts? What would you tell our real listeners about things. that?
1: Yes, definitely stop and check it out. Both because the law varies, and because that's the right thing to do. Right? You wouldn't want right. to dig up somebody's ancestors grave or sacred history without the consent of their descendants.
0: Right. Right.
2: That's fascinating. This is this you you have truly blown my mind today on a number of you like
0: that phrase, don't you?
2: Yes. I mean I'm a little bit wiser about Indian property rights after this conversation.
0: So Bethany, a lot of people in our industry are familiar with what's called a Section 106 review, which as you know can span anything from Buildings of historical significance to Native American, I think, artifacts and burial grounds. Are you familiar with the Section 106 process?
1: Uh, not super familiar, but I know a little bit about how it intersects with tribal and Indian issues.
0: And how does it intersect? With- <laughs> <laughs> with, with, I, and I, we talked about this before, and I did a presentation on se- Section 106 reviews a couple of years ago, but it was primarily focused on historic buildings and historic um, landmarks, because that's what we have out here in the East Coast, and there's a lot of it out here. And so it's a big deal when you're doing your Section 106 review. Indian heritage and Indian artifacts, not quite so much out here. So I'm curious as to what you can tell us about that process. And I I realize it may not be your expertise.
1: Yeah, so it's culturally important sites. Historically culturally important sites are part of what's included in the process. And definitely important indigenous sites can be part of that. So this is on or off reservation that if a culturally important indigenous site is discovered that you're supposed to figure out which tribe it's important to, contact them, consult with them, involve them in the process. And if you're on a reservation, then tribal preservation offices have the same role as state preservation offices do off reservation. So, you know, you're much more familiar with all the details about how it goes, but this is often a place where tribal culturally important interests have to be considered and where tribes may have to be consulted.
0: Yeah. And and what I recall about this is that in a section 106 review, no matter what it is, consultation is really the cornerstone of the process. And what I found interesting was what section 106 seeks is consensus. And it wants you to talk to whoever the impacted parties are And in an attempt to seek consensus on accommodating the affected party in the wake of that right-of-way project, it does not, and correct me if I'm wrong, it doesn't give the affected party any sort of veto power over the project. You're just trying to to appease them and, and make them allay their concerns over the impacts.
1: That's right. And definitely culturally important sites have been bulldozed and so on, contrary to the wishes, very significant wishes of tribal governments and tribal people.
2: So before we wrap up, Bethany, there was one question we kind of touched on earlier that I really would like to know a little bit more about, and that is when I was doing my Google research, I read so much about the substandard living conditions on uh, Indian reservations. Is that across the board, and why is that so prevalent, and is there anything that can be done about that?
1: It varies, but You know, there's a lot of poverty on a lot of Indian reservations. So if you look at statistics, native people on reservations are some of the poorest people in the United States. Um, One issue comes from this distinctive land status that because the land is in trust, you can't just go and get a 30 year mortgage with a right to foreclose um, on that land and you need federal and tribal consent for there's now a process in place to get mortgages but you need federal and tribal consent and both some banks are scared of going through that process and the federal government historically has kept terrible records of who owns what within this trust land uh, so it really slows things down but there are a lot of Recent developments that make it a lot easier to do development on reservations and build more housing. And it's looking like one of the big obstacles now is that banks are reluctant to get into the process. So that's something I would hope would change. Oh, wow. Has to do with the banks.
0: Always has to do with the banks. And on that, thank you, Professor Bethany Berger. This has been a fantastic conversation. And I hope you can join us again sometime.
1: Thank you, Bethany. Well, that was so fun. Thank you guys.